Uh, I think it's about time for us to get started on our last class of this quarter. Um, I was just talking to Miss Faye a minute ago. She said it seems like the quarter has really flown by, and it, I guess it's, you know, it seems like that every quarter for me. I, you get, especially if you're teaching, you kind of get going with a class, and you're rolling along, and before you know it, you're done, and you're like, wow, what did I say? I, I, <laughs> what did I say during this class? So um, I hope that, that the lessons have been helpful. I hope they've been instructive. I hope they've been empowering. Um, I've really enjoyed. I've really enjoyed this quarter a lot. Uh, I I always enjoy teaching anyway. I, I enjoy the learning aspect of it from my own point of view because I get to go through. I get to go through God's word and I get to discover things. You know, I get to see things in new ways, and that's always very exciting to me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to teach. Um, it isn't, uh, you know, uh, get, getting this opportunity, to me it really is. I mean, it's just like a joy. It's a gift to, to be able to be here and to, and to stand before you and to, to teach these lessons. So I appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do it. And I hope that <clears throat> this last lesson will be helpful. <clears throat> and it's Jesus the King. And, of course, this whole quarter has really been about work. Um, you know, Jesus works. It's about how we can use Jesus' example and the way that he does things um, in his, uh, when he was here on earth and, and in eternity uh, to, to how he does those things and, and how we can do things uh, in our own work the way that he did things and does things now. Um, as Christians, we're charged to be like Jesus. And so if we look at the examples of how he works... Um, in his world and his creation today, I think we can use those in our own work to be creative and to be um, hardworking, to have a good work ethic, you know, uh, to appreciate the gifts that, and talents that God gives to us and to use them to glorify him because ultimately that's what our purpose here is about. It's about glorifying God um, and, uh, and serving him forever. And that's a, that's a wonderful gift as well. But Jesus the King, um, this kind of is maybe a little bit apropos just in the political environment we find ourselves in right now. You know, we have presidential election coming up. I know that's not considered a king, but it is a, a nation, a leader of a nation. Um, and it's something that we have to consider you know, as far as what most people think of as the upper echelons of work. You know, we started all our lessons in the blue-collar area, things that were labor-type work, and we moved into the more white-collar-type jobs, things that would be considered more like desk jobs or management positions. And now we're into the upper level of society. We're into, you know, Jesus the son, Jesus the prophet, the priest, and the king and how those things factor into the way we work today. So Jesus the King, I guess you could say, is that's the highest you can go as far as our society sees uh, work. But royalty for human beings is a difficult thing. Uh, Throughout history, men and women have repeatedly failed at being kings and queens. It seems that there's always something that sneaks into their reign and corrupts it. 
Even the most successful reigns of David and Solomon were fraught with adultery, murder, polygamy, idolatry, and various other difficulties and sins that brought them ultimately to an ignominious end. And that's the way it seems to stay in the world, right? Because people are imperfect and they mess up. The position of king is one that historically fails as a position of leadership within the various types of leadership and government. Kings are supposed to be infallible, noble, just, and yet powerful. The cliche of power um, corrupting is true, at least a lot of the time. And absolute power, it seems, most of the time does corrupt absolutely. If you look at regimes, uh, dictatorships, um, uh, especially within older communist regimes, the guys who get the power, they have this absolute power over the masses, they wind up doing really horrible things, um, slaughtering millions of people, horrible, horrible things. So absolute power for a human being is one of those things that seems to corrupt absolutely over and over again. And this is evident in political offices of every sort, and the democracy we live in under is no exception. Um, we've seen time and time again the corruption that seems to pervade our government, unfortunately. But the kingdom of heaven is different. The king who reigns in this government is perfect in every way. His laws are completely just, and his people are joyful in keeping them. His love for his people is complete and understood, causing his people to love and respect him above all others. And his power, while absolute, is not of the corruptible kind. It is absent of hate, selfishness, and corporeal pursuits, making his rule perfectly beautiful and even longed for by his people. This position of work is occupied by the one and only Jesus, king of a theocracy that only exists in the kingdom of heaven. Through his perfect occupation, through this perfect occupation, we learn who Jesus is and who we are in relation to his kingship. So Jesus is the perfect king. He is incorruptible. He is um, perfectly just. His laws are good. And we'll see as we go through this how people delight. I mean, how many people in here delight in keeping all of the laws of this nation, the one we live in today? Try to delight in keeping all the laws? <laughs> Try to keep all of them, Snell? Okay. All right. It's not, in, in earthly governments, delighting in keeping all the laws of, of the different nations of the world, I don't think it's possible. But in the government of, of, of Jesus, it is. And it's beautiful and it's good. Something to consider as we go through today. Just All right, king of justice. We're going to look at some different aspects of Jesus' kingship. First, we'll look at his king of justice. Justice is a word that's been obscured by what people think it means. How many movements today and throughout history have based their impetus on some sort of perceived or real injustice? And how many of these movements really knew what justice means? In the church, we can get lost in an unbiblical idea of what justice is as well. Sometimes we misunderstand justice. We might think it's unjust that we have no voice in politics or that America has strayed so far from biblical standards. But America is not a theocracy. 
We live in a democracy here, or a republic. You know, different people have different ideas of what it is. Satan is a clever enemy, and he knows how to use the issues in the world to distract us from accomplishing our mission of bringing Jesus to the world. A lot of times people get caught up in political conversations, and it begins to overtake our real purpose as Christians. You know, if I'm, if I'm following a candidate, and I'm so, you know, going, driving so hard, oh, he's the right man for the job, and I'm just following that person instead of following Jesus, what have I done? I've fallen to idolatry. I've fallen to idolatry, and I see it over and over again, and unfortunately Christians do it all the time. And they get distracted from the true purpose of, of what we're here for. It's not to make America great. Our purpose as Christians is not to make America great. Our purpose as Christians is to make the kingdom of heaven great. It's already great on its own. We're just here to glorify God and to show everybody how great it is. <clears throat> but we, as Christians, live in a true theocracy under King Jesus and must seek his justice and say focus on our mission in his kingdom. Justice is something that God owns and he knows how to truly bring it about. So much of human justice is wrapped up in the idea of revenge and retaliation. You see that over, over and over again. It's very unfortunate. But any and every time we try to use, try that on for size, it's disastrous. Romans twelve nineteen gives us a look into this. Paul says here, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God understands what true justice is, and only he can mete it out properly. We have a judge who will see everything just as it is, untainted by the world as we are. When Peter speaks to the household of Cornelius, he makes clear how Jesus sees justice. In Acts chapter 10, verses 33 34 through 35, and also verse 42. We see this, if you want to follow along. It says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Justice is ultimately something that God defines. He is creator of all and has the understanding and right to deliver justice. But it isn't a justice of fear. The definition of Jesus' justice as our king can be seen numerous times in the Psalms. In every place... In the Psalms and throughout the Word, we see God's justice not as one of fear, but one of joy with the understanding that God will always, always do right. He will always do right. Psalm 119, verse 149. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. According to your justice, give me life. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. 
So justice is one of the foundations of God's throne. Psalm 101 and verse 1, a psalm of David. I will sing of the steadfast love and justice to you. O Lord, I will make music. Now that's interesting, isn't it? How many songs do we see in our songbook that, that extol God's justice? We sing of God's love quite a bit. We sing a lot about peace, joy, and other good things. But I don't know. I mean, I'd have to go through and look. So don't hold me to this. But I'd have to go through and look. But I don't know a lot of songs about justice. But it's very clear here that David thinks that God's justice, he wants to sing about God's justice. He wants to extol God for his justice. I'd like to do that. I'd like to extol God for his justice because it's pure and good and perfect. I think it's something that we, we might want to think a little bit more about, um, especially in relationship to, to how David sees it here. And again, in, in, in Psalm uh, 98, verses 8 through 9, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. I mean, he's talking about here the, the whole creation crying out to God saying, your justice is awesome, your justice is beautiful, your justice is good. We love it. We want it. It's coming to us and we appreciate it and, 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 and we're looking forward to your justice, God. Um, again, that's kind of a, you know, a take that we don't see or think about a lot of times about justice. Too many times we fear it. We want to go, oh, I don't want that. But over and over again in God's word, we see people going, your justice is, I want your justice. I want to see it. I want to see it. Unfortunately, in our culture, justice has taken on a negative connotation, especially from secular people looking in at the church. Justice has become synonymous with condemnation, something reserved only for God. But justice in and of itself is an act of love. You ever think about that? Justice is an act of love. Something that God uses to show his people how much he loves them. Yeah. You're in, a bad, you're in a bad situation, right? Yeah. Well, the justice that seems to be referred to over and over again here is justice for people like the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, or the immigrant. Okay, People who need God's justice in a good way. And that's the connotation I'm referring to here today. But I understand where you're coming from, George, and you're absolutely right. We don't want... We want God's mercy. We don't want to be punished for the sins. Unfortunately, we have Jesus because he covers all those sins and makes us right with God. But I'm, I'm kind of looking, looking at it the way that it's looked at here in the Psalms, that God's justice is good and right and pure and perfect for those who need God's justice of righteousness toward those who don't get it. In our society, the people who are the poorest, the people who are the lowest, are the ones who, who tend to not get 
the justice that they, that only God can give. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah, I, I agree. It's completely, what you're saying is completely right. I just want to make sure that y'all understand where I'm coming from with this because I don't want anybody to be like, there's no punishment or there's no hell or anything like that. That's not right. That's absolutely justice. That is, a, that is justice. But the, there's also the justice of the way God takes care of his people, right? So <clears throat> just kind of a flip side of that. And I appreciate that comment, George. Thank you for that. Um, but justice in and of itself is an act of love. So Jesus delivered justice over and over again in his ministry. And this is where I was kind of going with this. When he healed the widow's son in Luke chapter 7, he was giving justice to the widow. He was helping take care of that widow. When he ate with and talked with tax collectors and prostitutes, he brought justice to them through the equal sharing of the gospel, something his contemporaries would never have done. When he shares this same gospel with and through us today, he is bringing justice to a world that needs real justice. Justice is another part of grace that we receive and give and live in him. And he uses justice in us as we care for the widow and the orphan. As we see in James chapter 1 and verse 27. And for the immigrant and the poor as we see in Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 10. Justice is another manifestation of Jesus' love in us and through us to the world. Not a sour condemnation, but a righteous love and care that we bring to others through the gospel. So justice from the perspective of God's care, from the perspective of Him taking care of those who don't normally see justice in their lives, it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. If I'm someone who's living a life and I feel like I'm constantly being under the thumb or being, you know, injustice is being done to me constantly, and then I look at God, I look at Jesus, I look at the Holy Spirit, I, I see the justice that they're going to deliver to me, a person who has lived under injustice all my life, and I know that I'm going to live in a, in a kingdom of justice forever for the rest of my life. How refreshing is that? How uplifting is that? How different is that? A lot of times in America, we don't, we don't really get, I don't think we really get that perspective because we, at least, you know, most of, of, of people here in America, they obey the laws and, and the laws are pretty just, you know, for the most part. And and we, things are, are good. But if you were to go to another country and see the kinds of laws they have to deal with and the kinds of government and the different things they have to deal with, those people suffer from injustice. I mean, they suffer greatly from injustice. Think about North Korea. Oh, my goodness. Those poor people. They suffer horribly from injustice. And if I were someone who lived in North Korea, a poor person living in North Korea, scraping out my living barely getting by, and I mean really barely getting by, um, and I, somebody told me about God's justice, I'd want to know more. <laughs> I would want to know more. Unfortunately, I say unfortunately, we're very fortunate in, in our country and in our, in our government and in our uh, society to have the justice that we, that we have, but sometimes it kind of overshadows God's, I don't want to say it overshadows God's justice, it's not really right, but makes us where we kind of don't appreciate it as much. So I hope that maybe today we can think more about that because there are going to be times in your life when you face it. You might face injustice. Maybe not to the degree of someone living in North Korea or another uh, oppressive government throughout the world where injustice is really horrible, but, but you're going to face it and you're going to see it. And then I think 
you eventually kind of wake up and go, whoa. This world's really that broken that injustice can infect my life so much. I'm so grateful that God has a pure and good justice that goes on forever. So I hope maybe that helps that perspective a little bit. Um, Moving on to God of, or King of Love. I don't know if it's going to work, guys. Which way do I I point it at you guys to get it to go forward? (laughs) Very good. Okay, thanks, Joey. I'll just let you flip it. Thank you. All right, so King uh, King of Love. King of Love. <clears throat> love is another misunderstood word in secular and even sometimes in religious culture. One of the most prominent misunderstandings is, being, uh, is believing that love is just a word or a feeling. But love is more than either of those things. As the Holy Spirit writes through Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three But the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love endure, he says. But the greatest is love. Love is abiding, enduring forever. It it abides, it, it endures, it never ceases, it never fails. If you just look a few verses earlier, in verse or chapter 13, verse 8. We see love never fails. It never stops. Love is forever. But what does that tell us about love? Why is it important to understand that fact about love, that it is eternal, it's forever? I I believe it relates to the eternal nature of love and something that John writes in 1 John 4 and verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is Love. Love isn't a word or a feeling or a thing. Love is a person. Jesus, King of Love, displays this in who He is. Love is eternal. Love, God is love. Jesus has placed this same love in us and gives us assurance of our salvation and joy in His love. You look at 1 John 4.16, we see what John writes here. He says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him, lives in him. By this love, by this is love perfected, Within us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I think this is another beautiful example of the freedom and salvation we have from fear. Because of love. The king of love shows us in his salvation that there is no need to be afraid or to hate or to feel guilty for past sins because he has thrown all of that away. Love has cast out all of the garbage from our lives. It's that kind of love that pervades us and overcomes us and overthrows sin 
overthrows our past, overthrows all that garbage, and throws it out to where we don't have to deal with it anymore. In the same way, as we love one another, we help to cast out fear and hate and guilt and jealousy and envy and competing with each other over silly things of the world. Look at how Jesus puts it to the disciples in John 15, 12 through 17. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. He was never mean to them or jealous of the close brotherly relationships between Peter and Andrew or James and John. He didn't call out Judas and humiliate him. He didn't have petty competitions with the disciples to show them who was boss. The same love that is in Jesus must be in us. And it's that that we can take example from in our relationships between each other. Because just as Jesus is, so too are we supposed to try to be. In all of our relationships, including within the church and at work, when we work with other people, you know, if you're, if you're constantly trying to get ahead and stepping on other people, that's not the way Jesus would have done it. If you're constantly berating someone, that's not how Jesus would have done it. These are things to consider in our work and in the way that we live our lives. <clears throat> it's about upbuilding, about caring, and about trying to help people to see the truth. Now we're going to see if this will... Okay. Hey, Joey, I might need you to go forward another slide for me, bud. Go to King of Power. I don't know if the clicker's going to work. Okay, it might be stuck. But the next part, the next portion is King of Power. We'll just keep going. If it catches up, that's great. Have you ever felt powerful? Anybody in here ever felt powerful before? What what was it? Think about it. You don't have to raise your hand or whatever or answer. But just think about what was it like when you felt powerful? that time or two you've, you felt powerful in your life? <clears throat> was it because you had ownership of something or control of a group of people? Did that make you feel powerful? Was it because you finally got your finances under control? Did that make you feel powerful? Do you think power is about control? If you do, you don't really know what power is and you've never had it. Jesus shows us what true power is in a life that seems most devoid of it from a world, from a worldly understanding. While he definitely ensured his ministry was successful through prayer, understanding of all situations and spiritual teaching, Jesus didn't go about controlling situations or people. He changed the whole paradigm of power to one of empowerment. 
One of the first things he did before sending out his uh, 12 disciples was to empower them. In Mark 3, in verse 14, he says, And he appointed the 12, whom he also named the apostles, and uh, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He empowers them. Jesus could have micromanaged the situation and not entrusted such power to these green followers, but he instead shared his power with them. This same power he shared with basically every person he met. He healed people, removed evil spirits from them, raised their loved ones from the dead. Jesus hoarded no power. He shared everything that had been given to him. So as this king of power, power wasn't about control. It wasn't about establishing something earthly like that. It was about empowering other people and taking care of other people. Jesus displayed power in the way that he lived as well. We've heard more than once that Jesus is meek. What does that word mean? What does meek mean? I think most people misinterpret it as uh, someone who's weak or a pushover. Some Some equate meekness with humility. But none of these words really stand up to scrutiny in the face of who Jesus is or others who were called meek in the Bible. Consider Numbers uh, chapter 12 and verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. That's interesting. But you've got to consider Moses was also one of the most powerful men on the face of the earth at that time. So how do we reconcile Moses' power and meekness? Meekness is not a position of powerlessness, but a state of extreme power under control. It's power under control. This is the kind of power Jesus displays. He seems small, demure, and simple, but the real God-man is anything but. Jesus is meekness defined. All the power in the universe and more packaged into a young Jewish man. We see a glimpse of this true power in the Garden of Gethsemane when he simply says, I am he. And the power of those words flatten hundreds of soldiers who have come to forcibly arrest him. That's in John 18 and verse 6. Can you imagine that? I would have loved to have seen that event when they say, you know, who are you? And he says, or they say, are you, where is Jesus of Nazareth? They say, where is Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am he. And boom, they all just fall down. Just flattened by the power of those words. It's just amazing. And we see it at the transfiguration when he's transformed into his glorified form and stands first with Moses and Elijah, then alone as the Father raises him up as his beloved son. We see in Mark chapter 9. But all this power seems to steal away at the sight of the king of power who kneels before the mud-caked feet of his followers as he lovingly cleanses them and shows them what real power is about. In John chapter 13. So over and over again, Jesus is displaying his power in ways that unfortunately today is hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. 
it's seen in, in ways that transform lives, change everything about the way we see the world and the way that we operate as individuals and as a group of Christians in his creation, in his world. And this is where Jesus' power takes us. He brings you and me to his throne room and he says, come sit here with me. A picture of this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 through 3. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Jesus invites us. He invites you and me to be a part of the most important parts of his kingdom. As the king of power, he does not leave us out, but calls us into his kingdom to serve in righteousness, love, and goodness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 talks about our reign with him. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Or E-I-G-N, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and, you know, I hope that we never forget that as we live our lives out here in this physical world. You know, too many times we don't feel very powerful, do we? A lot of times we, we feel like, okay, thanks, Joey, I appreciate it. A lot of times we feel like we're maybe not making any headway or, you know, maybe the, 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 the work we're doing for God goes unnoticed or whatever it may be. But ultimately, Jesus is calling us into that reign with him. Forever. Forever. And that's a wonderful, peaceful thing that we can, we can always go back to. And it was, the, it was God's word in him that showed the power ultimately. And that's the same for us today. And that's, that's a great point that, um, that you say there, that it's God's 
<clears throat> power through his word that Jesus used to combat Satan. It wasn't just like, I'm the son of God, go away. He didn't do that. He used the word to combat Satan. And, and that's a, an excellent resource. It's the resource for us in temptation. It's the resource, it's the power and the meekness all wrapped up into one. That we're not speaking of ourselves and our own power, but it's God's power in and through us by his word that allows us to overcome the temptations, to overcome the evil of the world. And that adds back to the whole situation of humility, right? Because we can't say that was my power, that was my doing. No, that's God's power. It's all God's power. And it's all to his glory. And that's wonderful. Thank you, Miss Nell. I appreciate that very much. <clears throat> Jesus, the king of power, opens his kingdom to us and allows us a place to work alongside him just as we are yoked to him in our work now. Revelation ties the royal priesthood <clears throat> to the one found in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 and verse 9 and shows us how much Jesus wants to share in his glory and power as priests and priestesses, princes and princesses. Here he says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. The king of power defines power for us in a way that has been missed by the world. Now, I want us to kind of back up just a little bit about that first resurrection. That's referring to Christ's resurrection. We share in that resurrection today, right now. The second resurrection will be when we are resurrected, obviously, in the, on the day of judgment. But the fact that we share right now in Jesus' resurrection, because he has been resurrected, he has done away with the power of death, and he has that dominion over us to take care of us, and we share in that now. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, Scott Walkus, uh, some research that I did, puts it this way. It says, This is why vocation is always to be understood in terms of bearing the cross. It is something we share with Christ in some small measure, a part of his mission in the world, something that requires a death to self <clears throat> for the sake of God and other people. It is not primarily about self-discovery or self-fulfillment at all but about finding one's life by losing it for Christ's sake. That is to say, for the sake of his mission, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And only in this power can we truly live in his kingdom. Something that's uh, uh, always been interesting to me, and it may not really have any connection with reality, but I just think it's interesting, is that the cross... <clears throat> Especially the one, uh, you know, there, there are different ideas of what the cross might have looked like that Jesus hung on. Some uh, think that it was like a cross that, that went through like this. Some think that it was like this, like a towel symbol in Greek. Either way, you have this cross member here, and it looks, for all the world, if you were to just lay it down like this, it looks like a, a yoke. It looks like something that two people could get behind on each side and push along together, or pull along together, bear together, since there are two, there's the cross member that, that makes it where you can get behind that and push it together. 
<clears throat> and I think that goes pretty well along with what uh, Dr. Walkus is saying here, the fact that the work in our lives, the, the, the burdens of our lives, all those things kind of go back to the yoke that we bear alongside of Jesus. The fact that he is the one who really carries most of the weight, the one who carries us along, the one who bore the cross for us. But it's something that we share alongside of him in our own lives because we're supposed to take up our cross and follow him, right? We're supposed to take his yoke upon us and learn of him, for he is meek and lowly of heart. And all those things are bound up together in the way that we work with, you know, beside Jesus and in his kingdom and in the creation as a whole, as his people. <clears throat> um, it's just something to consider, um, something that I think is uh, kind of neat. <laughs> Jesus calls us to share in his justice, love, and power, not just through the acceptance of these gifts, but through the participation, sorry, I'm going to get it out in a minute, <clears throat> as rulers in his kingdom, accepting the awesome privilege and responsibility to reign, judge, and love with him forever. Now I'm going to try, okay. Joey, I might need you to do another slide for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it doesn't seem to want to go. Oh, there we go. We'll get it. Good. All right. Good. So a little bit on the work application side to kind of finish this off. <clears throat> to finish off the quarter. Wow. Crazy. For humans, justice, love, and power can appear to be irreconcilable. We can see justice and power as unloving. Sometimes people you know, will see justice and go, oh, they're bringing down the hammer on me. You know, or power, you know, they're, they're, they want to have power and control over me. So we can see justice and power as unloving. It's hard to reconcile all three together. Power seems to conflict with justice and love because of its corrupting influence. But in the kingdom of heaven, under our great and perfect king, all of these qualities make sense together. It is in understanding how Jesus makes these qualities work that we can bring them to the world around us. So if we see how Jesus uses justice, love, and power in his kingdom, and the way that he used them when he walked here, on earth as a human being, and in the way that he uses them in his kingdom now and forever, if we take those examples, we can use that in all of our relationships in the workplace, within the body of Christ, and with everyone we meet, everyone around us. Don't you want to give that kind of justice and love and power to other people? Don't you want to bring that to the world around you? I do, and I think it's important that we do as Christ followers. We can do as Micah writes. This is in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. And I think we've all heard this before. But Micah writes, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is possible for humans too. This is possible for us. This is not an impossibility. It's something we can do. In our workplaces, families, and relationships in Jesus as brothers and sisters, we can do justice. We can do that. We can show love in our kind 
attitudes, and actions and exude power in humility as we control that power in meekness. These attributes are all within our reach and can change our lives and the lives of other people. This is something that is not beyond our reach. This is not, it's something that we can do as Christians. And I, I don't want you to ever think that you can't. Sometimes we do feel like it's, it's hard. It's very hard. And we get discouraged. But that's where we all come in with each other too, right? We help bear each other's burdens. We help pick each other up. We help encourage each other and tell each other that we can do this, that we can have power and love and justice in our lives and that we can bring power and love and justice to other people all around us. And I hope that we, we really, really take that to heart and, and, try, and do that in our lives every, every day. So a few questions for thought. <laughs> There we go. Yay, all right, good. Okay. Oh, time's over. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all of you. And 